This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Get in, losers. This is the Lady Killers, a feminine rage podcast. I'm Jen. I'm Sammy. I'm Rocco. And I'm May. Our podcast is a tribute to the female identifying killers in horror and more. Each episode will feature us, your Supreme Court of female murderers, discussing our favorite lady killers from your Julias and Jennifers to your Carries and Christines. We'll tell her story, decide if it's good for her horror, and answer the most important question of all. Would we die for her? Join us on Thursdays as we pull on our sweaters, snatch our ice picks, sharpen our scissors, and honor the lady killers who live on the silver screen. No boys were harmed in the making of this podcast. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, Rockin' Randall declared warmly, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Today, Rockin' Randall will be hosting an episode of the Losers Club podcast excitedly. That's cool, the listener said sarcastically before pressing stop and jamming butcher knives into their ears violently so as to remove the adverbs and passive sentences that have so firmly nestled into their ears. Let's start over. My name is Rockin' Randall, and clearly I need to learn how to write. A good thing, as we're here to discuss On Writing, King's 2000 book about his craft and what us puds can learn from his journey. The Slim Manual begins with a rundown of King's early life, not an autobiography, says King, then segues into some practical and aspirational advice for good-slash-competent writers Nobody can help the bad ones. Mike, say hello and tell us his on writing made you a better writer. Yes, this is uh, Michael uh, the Craft. 
Rothman. Um, and I got to say, you know, I've. Feruza Rothman. Feruza Rothman. I'm just walking on the sea, holding all the books that I've written <laughs> since I've read this. Uh, I'm up to three books now, uh, all 500 pages. And uh, let's just say they're all situation stories. Uh, they start with a situation. So, you know, I got to say, King, you did it. You better watch out. I want to chase you up those New York Times charts soon. So, uh, you know. Was this you, your first you gave time? Me the magic. Was this your first time reading on writing? It was. And I, I, I think I mentioned this um, in the Valentine's Day episode that I wish I had read it in the beginning of uh, this whole podcast because I feel like one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is getting into the mind of, uh, of King and also just kind of the contextualization <laughs> of all his works. And there is just so many skeleton keys to so many of stories in this. And that to me, I, I wish I could go back with some of the stuff that we talked about in the last five years, but we can't. So um, <laughs> it was a joy. It was a joy though. So, uh, Dan, say hello and tell us, has on writing made you a better writer? This is Dan on podcasting, Caffrey, <laughs> talking to you about on writing. Um, yes, it most certainly has. I read this book, I think this is my third or fourth time reading it. And I, I don't I think this is a an especially insightful opinion. I'm sure this is how a lot of writers feel about it. I feel like it's made me a better writer, honestly, just from example, just from reading how someone else writes, not from a methodical craft standpoint even i know it's a memoir on the craft but from a lifestyle standpoint i feel like it was really helpful for me to read when i was younger just to see how someone else did it and how they they sort of centered their life around it um or am i getting that wrong what does he say have your writing come from your your life or not the other way around either way i feel like it has made me a more balanced it's given me a better uh work-life balance as a writer and uh, like mike said i just really love hearing the stories behind some of king's most famous tales uh <laughs> but that, that is true though i love i i i think it actually benefits you to read it once you you're pretty familiar with his fiction work um i really like getting that insight and i don't know I, I like the tone of it a lot too it, it feels i like how direct and informal it is and if you're a constant reader it does kind of feel like he's talking right to you um so yes absolutely he's made me a better writer and uh i'll get more into the specifics of that as we go on uh what edition do you have so the one th this was my first time reading the most recent edition i think 2019 i want to say i just read it online from the library uh but the first time around i read the first edition with the cool seller uh, photo on the front of it. I like that artwork so much better than any of the later ones, but mine is like black and white with uh, him just chilling on the front. This, this has an interview. Ah, that's one Mike has as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's that one. Yeah, this is the one that has the interview with uh, Joe Hill at the end and the essay by Owen King. So I'm, and they talk about it in the tall grass. So it has to at least be from 2019 onward. Well, uh, yeah, we'll talk about those editions uh, <clears throat> a little bit as well. Mel, say hello and tell me, has on writing made you a better writer? Hello, this is Mel cupping the curve of warm flesh through her stocking castle. <laughs> I won't ever forget that bit where he's describing being in a reading with Tabby. Absolutely, it's made me a better writer. And I definitely can't say that for all craft books. I think a lot of craft books suck and mm -hmm. have been written from entirely the wrong perspective. I think this has really contributed different things to me as a writer at each different time that I read it. When I read it for the first time a while ago, probably not close to when it came out, but not too far after, um, I really kind of took it as gospel. I took it as a textbook. I took it as a guiding beacon. And now I'm looking at it more, of, more as an approach to a craft book. Mm -hmm. And both 
lenses have really helped clarify a lot of things for me and muddy a lot of things for me in helpful ways. I really can't wait to talk about it. Have you read many craft books? Uh, Define many. I've read a few and I'm reading a few. They're super interesting to me as as a genre. Like Mm -hmm. I want to get more into them than I am now. Very cool. And uh, what edition did you read for this round? Same cover, but no uh, additional content other than a second book list. So oh yeah, this is so two thousand. Two thousand. Oh, oh no, you're okay. right. Scribner trade paperback edition, July twenty ten. There we go. Yeah, there was uh, two re-releases. The first one was with uh, the extra books in the book list, and then the other one was with the essays from his sons, uh, who definitely wouldn't have gotten published in that book if if their dad hadn't written it. I'm just saying. Uh, so, um, yeah, on writing was a book. I read it right when it came out. I was kind of obsessed with it. Um, and I, it was a very anticipated, I think I got it for Christmas in 2000 and I was very, very hyped about it. Cause I was basically at that time in my life where I was starting to take writing seriously. And so it seemed serendipitous to me that this book by my favorite author was coming out right when I was, uh, you know, taking writing classes in high school and was getting really excited about, about being a writer. Um, I have the first edition. I, when I was home recently, I grabbed my first edition, uh, that I got. That's why he's asking everyone what edition do you have? I just want to know what do you have? Oh, that's cool. Oh, oh, you like that, uh, seller drawing? Well, well, mine's got rips in the paper (laughs) cover because I've read it so many times. Actually, usually, you're usually not like a first edition uh, dude. So this is a big deal for you. Yeah. I was never a big collector, but, uh, yeah, but I just this was one of those that I got right straight away. And I didn't I didn't wait for the paperback. Let's just say that I, I was very, very stoked to read this one. So and yeah, did it make me a better writer? I think so. I think it changed the way I looked at writing. And but in a in a way where I always struggled when I was in writing classes and, you know, especially when I got older and I was going to conferences with people who went to like fancier schools than me, um, I was always insecure and felt like I needed to write like these other people. And I think one of the things that King really gets at in this is that it's you really need like I I, I have a lot of thoughts about the Nate what he's actually saying here and how much can be taught to a writer. And that's something that I think comes from, you know, years and years of just working professionally as a writer. But it's I think it's it's uh the most valuable thing I think I can take from this is he's really saying uh you know you are the only one who can tell the story that you want to tell and that um, your life, even if it seems like it's like other people's lives or if you think there's nothing interesting in your life, like there is a way for you to take um, the things that you have experienced and funnel them through whatever talent that you have and create something that nobody else could create. And I think that's a lesson that I've always tried to hold on to. And it's something that I probably first encountered in this book, because I think, you know, in a lot of the early writing classes I took, you were reading so many textbooks and you were also, you know, when I was in my teens and my, you know, early twenties, I think I was still in that phase where I was, I was still writing like the writers that I was reading, you know, and King talks about that a lot too. Just the notion that what we read impacts the way we write. And I think that is so, so true for me. Um, and a lesson that I think perseveres, but, but yeah, so let's jump in a little bit. I want to start by just reading um, he kind of details the history of how this book, he started working on this book and um, what happened during the course of writing this book near the end of it. Uh, page 265, 
He says, I actually began on writing in November or December of 1997, and although it usually takes me only three months to finish the first draft of a book, this one was still only half completed 18 months later. That was because I'd put it aside in February or March of 1998, not sure how to continue, or if I should should, should continue at all. Writing fiction was almost uh, as much fun as it had ever been, but every word of the nonfiction book was a kind of torture. It was the first book I had put aside uncompleted since the stand and on writing spent a lot longer in the desk drawer in june of 1999 i i decided to spend the summer finishing the damn writing book let uh susan moldau and nan graham at scribner decide if it was good or bad i thought i read the manuscript over prepared for the worst and discovered i actually sort of liked what i had the road to finishing it seemed clear cut too i had finished the memoir cv which attempted to show some of the incidents and life situations which made me into the sort of writer i turned out to be and i had covered the mechanics those that seemed most important to me at least what remained to be done was the key section on writing where i try to answer some of the questions i've been asked in seminars and at speaking engagements plus Plus all those I'd wish I'd been I'd been asked those questions about the language. Um, and then what kind of happened a few uh, weeks later was he was hit by a van while walking on the side of the road in Maine. And that put a bit of a wrench in this book. And this was the first book that he published after the accident. Uh, well, well, no, I guess Hearts in Atlantis came out, but this was the first one that he had written post-accident that came out. Um, so... And he talks extensively, and we're going to talk more about this, about how the process of finishing this book in concert with his recovery from the crash, um, I think, really impacted that whole process and 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 tested his relationship with writing and his love for writing. And I think that's why he kind of includes um, a pretty, you know, long, detailed essay about the crash at the end of this book. And we're going to talk more about that later. But I think that's uh, an interesting thing to touch on. He talked a lot about the writing of this book in other interviews as well. In The Guardian, he said, it was a lot harder to write than I thought it would be. For years, I've had people saying to me, how do you do this or that? And so I thought, I'll write a book and I won't have to answer these same questions over and over anymore. I got about 150 pages in and then what I wanted to say kind of drifted away from me and I stopped and then I was about ready to go back to it when I had the accident. The interviewer asks, how did it compare to writing fiction? King says, one of the things that happened halfway through the writing book was that there was a novel I really wanted to write. I mean, it's like sex in a way. You'd rather do it than write about it. But I hope the book will be valuable. I sort of hope it will be a renegade primer. I don't think teachers will get away with assigning it to 13-year-olds, but I hope the 13-year-olds will find it on their own. Um, I imagine that book was Dreamcatcher. Um, which was the next novel to come out and which we'll be covering next month. So gear up. A Scribner release, this book was critically acclaimed upon its 2000 release, going on to score a high ranking in Entertainment Weekly's 100 New Classics, a list collecting the 100 best reads from 1983 to 2008. It would receive two anniversary editions. I've already touched on those. And um, just a few review snippets here. Uh I'd say they were mostly positive, like I said, but there was a little bit of sniffing at him a little bit. I think uh, the New York Times review has some, uh, I don't know, some attitude. I'll say that much, but I'll just say uh, I'll read this little section. The book affects a tough down to earth manner, the blue collar guide to hammering stories together. It seems that King doesn't want to address the need to work with more delicacy, and perhaps he doesn't see one. Clearly, he wishes to make some statements about how he writes and how you can, if you want to, imitate his ways. 
He knows a lot about writing for magazines and about reaching vast audiences, and many of his anecdotes are interesting. But uh, he very much bristles, this reviewer, at some of King's advice, uh, such as um, King says at one point, use the first word that comes to your mind. Uh, If you think too much about it, then uh, I guarantee the first word will always be the best word. And the critic for The Times is basically like, well, I guess if you don't like thinking, that's good advice. (laughs) Is it Harold Bloom? I I feel like that's something Harold Bloom. I mean, I know he isn't he's not a critic for The New York Times, but that that just feels very Bloom-esque a little bit. I know, right? I think it was uh, I don't know. I can't remember his name. I was going to try to think of some fussy old British man whose tie is too tight. Uh, Leopold Rittenauer (laughs) or something like that. (laughs) Kenzie Worthington. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, The Post-Tribune was very uh, positive. They said in writing candidly and honestly about his recovery from a trauma that should have killed him, King has never been more affecting. Obviously, it is a good thing he was able to survive and get back into shape on a physical and emotional level. (laughs) I don't wish he was dead. Like, don't (laughs) put words in my mouth. I just think the book is bad. (laughs) The Associated Press, they said that King's advice is solid, specifically about dialogue and plot. However, they observe that many of the, the many other books about writing offer such advice and some are more inspirational and ambitious. The author notes how King cannot replicate a formula for his success, so he does the next best thing by describing his work habits and environment, urging that consistency in those areas can be conducive to good writing. I think that's actually a pretty apt observation. Yeah, I agree can, with that. We can talk about that a little bit more. In a profile of King in the New York Times, he he basically addressed the skepticism that I think some people had about him writing a writing book, the Harold Blooms of the world. And uh, when the interviewer asked how uh, King thinks the book will sit with them, King said, like the town whore trying to teach women how to behave. Um, <laughs> but uh but yeah, the hey King, like I know, right? There's some pound cake in this book. I, I was I know uh, more pound cake than I remembered, and um, I, I I know we're not formally doing it as a section, but I, <laughs> I I enjoy. I got some. I had some enjoyment out of the find a the way body to work or, them in the body elements of this book. Well, I'll say this. I mean, you know, one of my biggest quests in this podcast is figuring out his scatological obsession, and I think I have some answers at this book. So oh yeah, I'm yeah, pleased it is. about that. It is kind of, I, I don't know, it almost feels a little bit like Dance Macabre to me in that it is kind of this Rosetta Stone for a lot of his interests and his stylistic uh, trademarks and everything. Like, like it, it, I feel like it functions just as well as, oh, a cool nonfiction book about Stephen King as it does. I know oh, it's not 100%. autobiography technically, but it, it has a lot of biography in there. Yeah, oh, I, I, I literally coined a phrase for it that while I was doing it, because I, I, I didn't ha- know what to write. So I just said King site. <laughs> and I, 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 have, I have like a list of like 30 of them that I, I, I couldn't believe like how much he was, you know, putting in there. And a lot of them hit the targets that, you know, we've kind of painted ourselves um, on, on a lot of these episodes. I, I, I kind of patted myself on the back a couple of times where I'm like, well, I guess we were right on that. And uh, we were right on this. And <laughs> we're we were right on this. Uh, diagnosing a lot. Today. I think so, you know. Um, so, uh, but it is, I mean, the subtitle is A Memoir of the Craft. Like, I want to talk a lot about the craft book as memoir and how this craft book is conscious of that association, which I think is integral to every craft book. This is just one mm. of the first ones that wears it on its sleeve. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk more about that. I love that. 
King also with this book, he invited his readers slash writers to submit their work to him. And at the time in the New York Times piece, they mentioned that he was thinking about publishing the best offerings in a paperback edition. What ended up happening was in the United Kingdom paperback version, a short story by Garrett Adams entitled Jumper was included at the end of the book. Uh, The story won the on writing competition. So um, not as good, perhaps, as a paperback. Uh, you know, with the best best offerings, but Garrett Adams did get that. Although, if I'm being honest, wasn't it Stephen Jenkins who wrote Jumper? Yeah, he did. Third Eye Blind fame. I think it was after talking to Stephen King too. He he told him he had to take out the adverbs from the song because it's hard to (laughs) it's hard to white boy rap when you're saying Lee after you know every. It's it'd uh, be funny if um, too long. If it really was Stephen Jenkins from Third Eye Blind who won the contest, it'd be like when Mr. Burns wins the uh, the free car <laughs> at the baseball game and, and everyone boos him. He's, he's like, clearly he's, rigged. He's like, Stephen, we're both uh, we both spell a name with a PH, <laughs> although mine's an A at the end. It makes it a little more exotic. But uh, yeah, I'm just it's, laughing, it's, thinking of Stephen Jenkins winning like a Stephen King writing contest. Um, he probably, I mean, Stephen Jenkins was like a valedictorian of his. Like, he was very smart. University. Yeah. I mean, and he's. There's something intelligent about him, but also something so fucking boneheaded about him. It's very, yeah. I can just see him stopping through like Bangor and, you know, King's there because obviously King likes rock music. And as we learned with uh, Bev Vincent, he likes to go to a lot of shows. Or no, um, Jamie Tinker, he he likes to go to rock shows in in, uh, Bangor. You know, I just see him being like, you know, that was a great show, uh, you know, uh, Stephen. He's like, you know, I love your books, uh, especially the, the one with the car. It's classic. You know, I can just see him. Just, yeah. Just baseline fucking conversation he, ever. <laughs> he's like, you know, I in my song, A Thousand Julys, um, yeah, I talk about vampires. You have a book about vampires. You have that uh, book. One, the, win this he would never name any title. It would just be like the most vague descriptions ever. You know, the, the clown. Yeah, do, one, another, man. do another clown book. Do a sequel. Everyone yeah, loves clowns. Clown They're scary. <laughs> Mel, do you have any thoughts on Stephen Jenkins, The Third Eye Blind? I don't. Okay. I didn't know that that was his name until right now. <laughs> With S T E P H A N. Yeah. Yeah. I feel corrupted by this knowledge. I don't feel informed. I feel like I've lost something rather than gained something. I, you know, by listening I, I, to this. If I'm in the book, we can. I I can use. Uh, what do you call it? Non de plume. I'm uh, Stephen Jane Kings. <laughs> I, I love the. When I'm in the back of your what's book. What's great about what all this? Voice? What's great about that is how he talks. <laughs> He has he has this like like he's kind of from the Bay Area, but he he does though yeah it's he's kind like of like very macho. Too, it's very right? strange his his affectation that he has on um it's it, there isn't because I don't know anyone in from San Francisco who has that voice you <laughs> yeah, know yeah. It's, I think it's also because he you know he he raps in a lot of his songs so maybe he doesn't know how to quit. You know, having some sort of lyrical tone to his his uh, his cadence, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. Is this our most random digression? Well, is this on Boston's? your hosting outline, Randall? Do you have a bracketed thing that just says like Jenkins break? Well, no, but I did write in my notes make Jenkins joke. So okay. uh, well, I it's funny because my internet froze, so then it came back, and you guys were talking about Stephen Jenkins. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Seems par for the course. <laughs> Caffrey's on this episode. I feel like this can't be the first time we've had a Stephen Jenkins. No, probably not. Uh, now I'm fucking talking like you remember. I'm like, oh, Stephen Jenkins tangent on the podcast. But, Love uh, it. Yeah. Okay, anyway, we're leaving I, all of this in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want to, I think a good question with this, and it's one that King seems to wrestle with a lot too, is he he kind of acknowledges the idea of what do I have to say about writing? Multiple times. He seems to be wrestling with it throughout the book. Why am I writing this? And he seems to always be pushing against coming across as pretentious. And uh, we can talk about that a little bit more. But I just want to read this section from the intro, the foreword, uh, page eight. He says, um, why did I want to write about writing? What made me think I had anything worth saying? 
The easy answer is that someone who has sold as many books of fiction as I have must have something worthwhile to say about writing it. But the easy answer isn't always the truth. Colonel Sanders sold a hell of a lot of fried chicken, but I'm not sure anyone wants to know how he made it. If I, well, isn't it the, the, the herbs he and spices? Chicken. Oh, does, does he? Doesn't he hate his chicken? Yeah. I, just, I thought I they kept the herbs and spices under lock and key. Yeah, it's a secret uh, recipe. People are. I guess you're, I guess you're right. Trying to heist okay. that shit. Um, if I was going to be presumptuous enough to tell people how, how to write, I felt there had to be a better reason than my popular success. Put another way, I didn't want to write a book, even a short one like this, that would leave me feeling like either a literary gas bag or a transcendental asshole. There are enough of those books and those writers on the market already. Thanks. Um, but then he adds, what follows is an attempt to put down briefly and simply how I came to the craft, what I know about it now and how it's done. It's about the day job. It's about the language. Um, I was really into that and I see that thread going through the book and he mentions a lot how he wants to keep it short he says that multiple times because I think he knows that he has a tendency to go long and that's him sort of keeping himself in check throughout and making sure that because he's like the worst place that I could go long is in a book where I'm talking about myself and King seems really hyper aware of that um, in ways that I find really well, interesting. Well, he admits as much. He said that, you know, there are some writers that take away or that don't have enough in there. And I, mine is my, you know, folly is that I add too much, you know? And yeah. so, I mean, and it makes sense. I mean, look at his story sometimes. Most of the time I feel like we say, yeah, he probably could cut 200 pages or 300 pages here. Oh yeah. The fucking raft scene in the talisman is about 80 pages too <laughs> You long. hate that scene so the, much. I think it's my least favorite scene in all of King. He does. He cops to over-describing. He's like, I'm an over. Just, it's what I mean when I say when he's writing defensively as though someone is just always going to be like, <laughs> it wouldn't have happened that way. And he's like, well, no, here's how exactly it would have happened. Yeah. What does it look like, Stephen? What does it look like? Yeah, huh? exactly. <laughs> the, the stuff about, I feel that the claim that he wrote this because he was filling a gap basically that he, he hadn't quite come across a book like this that addressed the language component or the sort of workaday component. Um, I'm not sure I buy that. Like I, I'm sure that that's part of the motivation or that's part of the starting line reason for this book, but it is such an autobiographical study. Like it is such a memoir that to me, the, the true meat of that motivation is buried in the, how I came to it or like the, the examination of like how I do it. The language stuff throughout is incredibly vague and like circles back on itself and mm -hmm. contradicts yeah. itself. He doesn't define almost any of the terms that he yes. uses in this book to talk about the language. 100%. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We'll get to that. But I, again, like you just can't separate this book from it being an exploration of one man's memory and mind. And like, that's so much more of what rises to the top of my head when I think about it, then it is like a guide to using language. So it's funny to me that it starts with this thing where he's like, Amy Tan like came up to me and was like, nobody ever talks about language. I'm like, yeah, you don't either, Steve. You don't either. Yeah, I agree with that. I I, I feel like that was, it's kind of an interesting hook that he kind of throws out there in the beginning. And then ultimately what I felt that, that he kind of does instead is, you know, he, he wrestles with the, with the conundrum of, all right, well, I'm going to write a book about, you know, about writing in the context of my own life. And ultimately 
I, you know, he talks about how everyone asks these questions and he's going to write this book that's going to be able to give it the answers to those questions. But what's the big thing, the big question that they always ask Stephen King, the one that he even makes fun of himself is, hey, where do you get all these ideas from? Which ultimately is probably the most important, you know, conundrum or question that anyone's going to have because, you know, yeah, you can sit here and you could write well, you could know the techniques, you can know the language, you can know, you know, how to have your own voice or whatever. But I, and Randall, we talked about this uh, two days ago, is that like, if you don't have the idea, and at one point he says, you know, don't wait for the muse. And I disagree. I actually feel like that's kind of a problem because I, you know, I feel like most writers out there, if they don't have that, that, that seed of an idea, or they don't have that, even that, that seed of an idea, which could be a situation that he kind of, you know, champions here, you're stunted. And it doesn't matter how great you could write like, I think you're just kind of a lot of people, myself included, you just keep waiting for that idea to come around. And I think the way that he reconciles with that, that the fact that there is no answer to that, there isn't, um, is by just talking about his life so that now in, in, you know, in seeing this and reading this, I do see where those ideas come from. And I do understand when he ultimately says, oh, well, you know, you have those magical gotcha moments, which, you know, if you're a teacher and you're teaching the craft, you can't just say, well, it's magic, kids. Like, you do have to kind of come up with some sort of context. The question behind the question for King specifically, when people say, where do you get your ideas, is why are you so fucked up also? I do think (laughs) so, yeah. And that's also, the I think that's the hidden, that's the shadow question that he's also answering. Well, and I think he answers a lot of that by talking about the, the fact that, you know, one of the more confessional things he says in here is that it's harder for me not to write and not to work mm-hmm. than it is to actually just go and sit down and write. And I think that's telling when you consider the fact that he has an addictive personality. You know, he's addicted to cocaine, he's addicted to cigarettes, drinking. And although he, you know, he mentions the fact that like, you know, for a while he did think that these things were in concert together for himself to like, oh, I have to have one thing to be able to do the other thing. He ultimately says he doesn't. But really... And we've talked about this multiple times in this podcast, especially in the you know the episode about addiction and recovery. Is that, and this is something I firmly believe in too, as someone who has my own addictions and come from an addictive family. I think you ultimately have to have that thing that that satiates that addiction. And I think for him, as we've seen over the years, the the, the writing feeds that, and that addiction could be that dark side, you know, that dark you know passenger in him, if you will. And I think that ultimately that's what drives him. Like that is the thing that keeps him going and that keeps him going back to the desk. Um, Cause it's almost like the idle hands thing and the idle hands for him is taking these ideas that he be it experience or, you know, things that pop up and just putting in a paper, putting in a paper, putting in a paper. And you know, it works for him. I don't know if it works for everyone else, but I mean, I don't know. I'm going off on a tangent there, but I think that's kind of <laughs> where it's at on where I'm at with, with, I, with those questions. I think he doesn't, reach that conclusion ultimately like that's up to the reader I guess and it's super interesting to think about it in the framework of this is now what my addictive personality is is using for that that say that satiety as you were saying I just really admire what I see as an incredibly earnest attempt to tackle those questions like an earnest and present attempt and it's like all here in this tiny little package Mm -hmm. like I love that he calls it a memoir of the craft like Again, like all craft books, in my opinion, should be part memoir. They already are, whether or not they cop to it. They're they're a product of a particular mind's view of writing, and that's been shaped by their life and their experience. And the ones that come off as prescriptive as just like 
broadly applicable rigid lectures like they're mostly pretty bad they're they're kind of really whiffing it I think when it comes to like giving a perspective on writing like a craft book is deeply deeply personal it's how one person thinks about writing and that they are immensely successful at writing as Stephen King is doesn't mean that they know how everyone should do it it only means that they know a ton about how they do it and that's why I think everyone should read a ton of craft books not to learn how to write I feel like I've beat this drum in front of Randall before. You don't do it to learn how to write, but you learn, you do it to learn how other individuals write and think about writing. But then to like, look at that and say like, how did I accrue this knowledge? How did I start building it in the first place? And like coming to that, trying not to have a lot of biases and trying to just kind of scatter a collection of memories on the attic floor, like you would dumping out a box, like what a great, courageous place to start and like a humbling place to start like I love that this just opens with and it's called CV like he's acknowledging Mm -hmm. that this is the workings of a life that has led him that has built up into a a big stack of like somehow the person he is today um but in this fragmented again like collection of random objects style um there's just something about the humility of the exercise that really appeals to me and it it seems to tap into the folksiness that I often find annoying about him in a much more close and earnest way that he's like I'm game for this exercise like we're gonna start and we're just gonna fuck it yeah let's let's see like what do I remember like let's just objectively go through a bunch (laughs) of snapshots and honestly it's those snapshots and that experience that that works and connects the most. It's like what you were just saying before, you know, before is that like so many of the craft books when they do and tend to, you know, use these sort of broad definitions or lessons, so to speak, they come off as not, not disingenuous per se, but like, well, okay, that works for you, but maybe it doesn't work for me. But for me, it's like when the book even comes close to that, that's when I find myself like, eh, not really on yeah. it so much. But when he gets into the stories about it and offers the sort of anecdotal uh, sort of examples that you could have that 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 kind of give a little bit more fat to those the, the, those statements. That's when this fucking sh- the, the, this whole book just takes off. Like I kept waiting for like, all right, give me that next tangent. Come on, I want that tangent so bad. It's I know it's going to be good. And most of the time, mo- like nine out of, nine out of ten times, it was like they're always great s- stuff. And I'm like, and then yeah, the babysitter farts in your face. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, the origin <laughs> of pound cake, right there. How about that? So we're Wait, ta- we're we- talking about the first section. Yeah. So I'm I was going to say this is a very good segue Uh, i guess we're already pretty deep in the weeds of the first section which is called cv uh yeah memoir of sorts here it's yeah i like how you phrased it mel it's like dumping a box of memories onto uh the attic floor very good way to phrase it and i think it's i think what you're saying is really on point in terms of him wanting to sink back into his memories a little bit because lest we forget this book um he was working on this book around the same time he was working on hearts in atlantis and hearts in atlantis as we've discussed extensively on the podcast is very personal and very real uh, story of King reckoning with his college years and his past idealism and the way his life is shaken out and the way the life of his friends and family have shaken out and the way that uh, politics has changed and the world has changed. He's already in a self-reflection, a mode of self-reflection when he started working on this book in 1997. Um, And I think it's it speaks a lot to um, that obsession that he's like, He's like, I'm in this moment of self-reflection. I guess this is a good time for me to ask why I write. How do I do it? And um, what is the and I think he probably wants to know, too, like, what is the secret that makes me so much more prolific than everybody else? I mean, he would never say that, but I think he knows that deep down. Um, He's always very modest about um, how much work he actually does when everyone around him is like, it is supernatural. Not in this book. I know. (laughs) In this book, he's like, what are you all fucking doing? 
<laughs> True, but then like I remember in the in the New York Times uh, uh, profile that accompanied this, they talk about how he uh, is very very modest. Like he was like b- bemoaning that he had only finished on writing. Uh, written a bunch of Dreamcatcher, written Rose Red, and like did the plant and all this other shit, and writing the bullet like over the course of several months. He's like, oh, that's all I did. You know what I mean? And it's like, shut up. Hello, Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. Um, so... <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think that's just a cool thing to note as we go into it. And I have another really another little section from The Guardian here where uh, the interviewer asks him specifically, why did you want to include the autobiographical elements of the book? King says, I wanted to address that central question. Why do you write the awful things that you write? And that speaks to what you were saying, Mel, um, where when people ask, where do you get your ideas? They're asking, why are you so fucked up? King says, and there's no direct way to answer that question. In a way, it's like saying, why do you like broccoli? You can't explain that. It's wired into your system. It's genetic. But I think there are a set of experiences that turn a potential writer into a working writer. And then there are places in your life where you start to recognize what you want to do. The interviewer asks, was it therapeutic? He says, I wasn't trying to clear things up with this book. I'm not a big fan of psychoanalysis. Uh, Ding on Jen's podcast. We still recommend it. Um, It's called (laughs) psychoanalysis. Uh, I think if you have mental problems, what you need, what uh, you need are good pills. But I do think that if you have if I but I do think that if you have things that bother you, things that are unresolved, the more that you talk about them, write about them, the less serious they become. At least that's how I see my work in retrospect. This was not an attempt to write about my life, but in a way I can't separate, of course, the life from the work. I called the first section of the book CV because I wanted to say, here are my references. Here's where I've been. This is how I got here. We've already talked about, Mel and Mike, you guys kind of shared some of your thoughts on why this is important in a book about craft. And we can certainly talk about that a little more. But I guess as, um, you know, as a chapter, what was it about this section that pulled you in? What what were the memories that really worked for you that spoke to you and helped elucidate King the writer for you? Uh, who wants to kick it off? Dan, how about you? Yeah, I mean, it <laughs> sounds really silly, but it's it's the Muppet Baby version of King, right? It's him. It's him with his brother's magazine writing a comic and then going to see a movie and doing a novelization of that. And tiny exercises with yeah, yeah, tiny, <laughs> tiny kings. No, for real though, because I th- I think regardless of how mighty or respective a writer you go on to be, I mean, it all starts off with the shit you like. I mean, for real, when, when I, th- when 
if you talk to anyone who gets into writing, I guess maybe there are people who find it later in life, but someone like Stephen King, right? He's going to have started when he was very, very young. And I think just seeing him do that at such a young age and seeing that gradual evolution. And, and I think too, because he has such a good perspective on it, you know, like he's not saying, oh, there I was finishing my first short story. <laughs> who, what was I? I was reading this interview today with, um, Israel Horowitz, who Adam Horowitz's dad from the BC Boys, is this playwright who died a couple of years ago. Very, it came out later. He was super shady with women. He, I, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. He always came off to me as kind of an asshole in, um, <laughs> in interviews. And he talked about how writing, you know, writing my first novel at thirteen indicated what I would Love. go on to become. And it, it was just, it was so highfalutin and he was trying to sound humble about it, but he really wasn't. And I love that Stephen King's like, no, I wrote this disgusting thing and then I went and saw a movie and ripped it off and I got in trouble for it. I, <laughs> I think there's something about just the adolescence with which he attacks adolescence that was so refreshing. It was just a really good reminder to me of, yeah, it starts off with the shit you like. It starts off with the, we, a bunch of us on this podcast have talked about how, how seeing Jurassic Park and, Writing yep. our own shitty versions versions of uh was it Monster Island, Randall? Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> I was gonna say this. Uh, I think what really works for me here is I see a lot of me represented in his mm -hmm. story. Like I think a lot about when I was young. I wrote you know a little hundred. I wrote like a hundred and twenty five page little handwritten novel, quote unquote, called a uh, Death in the Making. But it was about a uh, an um, island filled with monsters and dinosaurs. And uh, yeah, and I wrote it after watching Jurassic Park. I basically just ripped it off and wrote my own little version of it. And that's what King would do. He would go to the monster movies and then he would come home, write a novelization, print it out with the help of his brother and sell it at school. And then he got in trouble yeah. for that. And, and, uh, and, but, that's, and that's how it starts, I think, for yeah. so many of us, especially if you're a Stephen King fan and you happen to be a writer also. Chances are you you did start off with something pulpy and disrespectful and, and plagiaristic and whatever else. And I think once again, like, when I think about why I love this book in general, and especially one, well, no, I actually say especially the second section, I keep thinking of the word demystifying. And and I will say sometimes, not so much in this section, King does have a little bit of an anti-intellectual streak about him throughout. Oh, yeah. Um, and that does get a little bit annoying sometimes, especially when he talks about theme, which I know we'll get to later. That being said, I really do think it serves the kind of coming of age element really well of this story. And also, too, he's so coming of age is almost like a subgenre within what he writes with it in different seasons. And this almost felt like his version of that, like the coming of age of Stephen King. So, yeah, this really sung for me and just got me into it right away. And I, I forgot which one of you said it about just like, him going on these runs and right away. And I don't mean the runs from the babysitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, just kidding. The, was it farts of the fat, juicy variety or something? Um, <laughs> we'll but, get to uh, that. But um, yeah, no, right, right off the bat, I'm like, oh, great. He's talking about the the shitty like Grindhouse movies or, or uh, drive-in movies he saw when he was a kid and how that influenced him. Like, it, it sucked me in right away and just really made me relate to it. Yeah, Mike, what were you going to say? Yeah, it, it, well, you kind of already hinted on it. The anti-intellectualism is something that I've always really kind of connected with him on because, I mean, uh, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm not writing fiction anymore is because of all the, the is because I went and got a grad school degree. Um, I, I'm very distrustful of academia. I, I And it's coming from someone who literally spent 20-something years thinking that they were going to be a professor in there. Um, and one of the things that, I, that I've always loved about just kind of seeing it peak up and and, and Peter up is that's something that is pretty obdurate in his sort of um, constitution. Like he's never changed and wavered on that feeling. And 
you know, a lot of it comes down to the fact of like his own origin story here. I mean, we get to see the seeds of it. I mean, when on there's that, let me get the section real quick. It's on page uh, 45 for me when he's getting scolded for selling his stories. And uh, one of, I guess one of his professors or your teachers was like, what I don't understand, Stevie, is why you'd write junk like this in the first place. You're talented. Why do you want to waste your abilities? She had rolled up a copy of VIB number one that was brandishing it to me the way a person might brandish a rolled up newspaper at a dog that has piddled on the rug. She waited for me to answer. To her credit, the question was not entirely rhetorical, but I had no answer to give. I was ashamed. I had sp I've spent a good many years since, too many, I think, being ashamed about what I write. I think I was 40 before I realized that almost every writer of fiction and poetry who has ever published a line has been accused by someone of wasting his or her God-given talent. If you write or paint or dance or sculpt or sing, I suppose, someone will try to make you feel lousy about it. That's all. I'm not editorializing, just trying to give you the facts as I see them. Um, and then later on in that same section, he's like, I guess that means I won the end, at least in a financial sense. But in my heart, I stayed ashamed. I kept hearing Miss Hisler asking me why I wanted to waste my talent, why I wanted to waste my time, why I wanted to write junk. And one of the things, and you know, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to sit here and dismiss, uh, obviously the college experience I've spent still spending many dollars, uh, for the, the, the talent, the time that I've put there. But one of the things I do appreciate with this book is shining a light on something that none of our parents really would, at least our generation, I feel like wouldn't where, you know, they pushed the idea that like to unlock these doors in life, you have to get the degree. And I don't, I reject that principle now at this point when I'm almost 40 years old. And I, and I think a lot of it is largely for the reasons he puts on paper, um, starting in this section. And then certainly towards the end, when he's starting to talk about writing classes, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. Um, and, his reasonings are, are, I think, are all fair in that they do offer more handicaps than they do think they produce more results. And I think, you know, just as someone who has been so obsessed with that sliver of King's life, to see all the dots being connected, it's, you know, to, to borrow what Mel was saying, you know, it was, I picked up one of those snapshots on the floor or one of those memories on the floor. And it it, it really did sort of just... I don't know, reconfirm a lot of the things that I had suspicions about him for so long and for all my, for myself. I mean, I'll never forget when I sat in, you know, in FSU and my prick of a fucking professor went off on me for <laughs> writing a, a genre story and embarrassed me. In who front who of was it? I can't remember his name. He looked like it a Robert Olin Butler. Probably, uh, probably read a lot of fuck. It was here, Robert Olin um, <laughs> No, he was, he was Robert a Robert Olin Butler <laughs> writes genre stories. But Bob I, it, Butler, it, yeah. It was just so, like, I just remember, like, I remember, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And then I just like left. And then I, I came back the next day or whatever. And I wrote some boring fucking story about someone hanging around a field thinking about life or whatever. But like, I, <laughs> It was just, it, but it, but that, but that's, I had a chip on my shoulder the same way. And to see that sort of connection there is, is ultimately like probably the greatest takeaway from this that where I, I had, it, you know, I don't know. Sorry. It swung back the other way. Like, I feel like I, I sort of joined the writing world on the tail end of that. And then the pendulum went again, like mm -hmm. back. And I was sort of encouraged and like my weird pulpy shit was like pretty welcomed in all these like hoity toity venues. But I did experience like the tail end of what you're talking about, yeah. Mike. And also, I just think it's interesting that King will not extend the same kind of grace that he wish was extended to him to the poets. <laughs> like he can't. I felt that way about players oh, yeah. too. About he 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 really like 
the non the the writers of mediums that are not fiction, he I feel like he just dismisses it. I mean, <laughs> he does talk about poetry when talking about Tabby's poem and some other stuff. Anyway, Mel, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, no, I, I, I'm, I had that I'm with thought. you. Well, of I think... course, he likes Tabby's poem. Right. Okay. To be fair, Tabby's poem pretty good. And like, it was, yeah, yeah, I was, yeah, I, I was and worried. I, I agree with him about the empty, yeah. vapid poetry. I guess. No, like, I too, yeah. The moon when with I no did... vowels or whatever. I just think it's really funny that he never pauses to consider like maybe these people have obsessions that are mysterious to them that they can't. <laughs> express in any other way just like me and i can't quite put a finger on like what i'm doing maybe they can't but no he's just like yeah well you know i think that anti-intellectual streak that he has it it was something that was rooted in him really early because he did come from poorer Mm -hmm. surroundings i think than a lot of other people that he went to school with and he went to classes where he was seeing experimental art get made he makes a jab at spoken word uh, poets as well um like later in the book and i think a lot of um experimental sort of Uh, storytelling is not something that he's very into and he never really had to be challenged in that regard because he had success so young and he was able to look at all the people making the experimental art that made him feel like shit when he was younger and say I won I'm the one making millions of dollars because I'm writing you know straightforward horror stories that you guys said were not valid and he's always been able to have that success Mm I mean, and I, will, I, I, will I feel like so he's not. I feel like he's just never had to waver in yeah. that. You know what I mean? So yeah. Well, it's funny because in I think it's the bizarre bad dreams. He has a poem in there about it's, it's something about like mammoths being hunted or something. But which sounds cool, right? But <laughs> but it's he try, he almost tries to dress it up in that kind of avant garde language a little bit, and it doesn't work. And it is this reminder of like, no, I I do like appreciate that Stephen King knows what he's good at. But like you guys were saying. I and look, I I will cop to it. I mean, theater pe- Randall can attest to theater people can be so fucking annoying, like oh, it's ridiculous. God. And playwrights can be so fucking annoying. And so I do understand that it could go the other way with oh, they're intellectualizing it so much and it's ridiculous. And there's no way you were thinking about this when you wrote it, or this thing that you're presenting as being um, mysterious is actually just bullshit or whatever. I do agree with that, but he is so dismissive sometimes. Like, and and he does it a lot with poetry and theater specifically. He, not even just here, but in, in other forwards to other books, he'll say stuff like, "Oh, well, if you want, you know, a deep, profound message, I'm sure you can check out your local small theater or something." And it, it does feel, <laughs> it, it just, it does feel a little bit like I don't know, so despite bitchy. having a a fucking musical at at the Alliance. Like, it does show a little bit, like, oh, well, there's more to that world, I think, than you are saying the same thing with poetry but I, you know i can't get too prickly about it because it is funny at the same time he kind like, of owns did, up to it too that yeah, he's, yeah he's guilty of a lot of the things he criticizes yeah you know? totally I, but I, I think a lot of it comes to the fact that he's pragmatic i mean like we talked about this on the you know the 1999 um you know accident episode which you're gonna get on patreon patreon.com slash the barons but uh <laughs> lame plug with fucking chill <laughs> over here um but like we talked about i talked you know at great lengths about how like you know, even his pragmatism, you know, surfaces up in that he didn't even really want to press charges. He just really wanted to make sure that this person was off the road. And I, I feel like that's his approach to all things in life. Like, you know, and granted, that's a total generalization. And I apologize. But I do think just seeing his the, his approach to the craft here and then also just seeing how he even, you know, writes characters, as which as we've learned is, you know, is or is is his coming from the truth of himself. And maybe that is himself kind of trying, you know, instilling his own sort of um, you know, wisdom and insights and the ways that he kind of deconstructs you know, problems and critical thinking. Like I think he really does come from that sort of workmanlike ethic of like, 
like if you want to get shit done, you got to get it done yourself. And like, I think that's kind of ultimately like one of the biggest things he stresses here. I mean, like he, he talks about how, like, I mean, he says straight up, like, you know, first off, it's already hard enough to be a writer if you're not born one, which I guess we can talk about that. But he says like, you really got to put the fucking work in and you got to love it. And I think one of the other things I really relate to on here is that is it comes from that sort of pragmatism where it's like, you know, you, if you really want to succeed in life, and this is where I want to start sounding like Tony Robbins. So I apologize, but if you really want to succeed in life, like you got to love what you're doing because in order to succeed, you're going to have to do it every fucking minute, every, almost every second of the day, or like you really have to just like pour everything you can into it. And like, I just don't see I feel like with him, his suspicions on these, 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 the way, so to speak in, in life where it's like, oh no, you got to go to class. You, you got to apply. And then you got to intern and all this other stuff. Like I, I think more often than not, and I'm just speaking personally, like that shit doesn't work. And like everyone telling you that this is the way ultimately it really comes down to you resting on your own laurels and resources and making it happen for yourself. And like, Sorry, I went like six different fucking tangents on that. But that's that's kind of where I see why he sticks to his guns on this stuff and he doesn't waver. And he and I think it honestly is that he sees this and he sees problems with it and he's just kind of, you know, putting the blueprint out there of what he knows best. And and I think that's well, let me, I don't know if it's anti-intellectualism, if it is so much as just a distrust on the process. Let me jump there. in. I think uh I think to tease out some of what I think you're getting at, which is I think what's interesting about King is that he, unlike many authors, didn't have a way in. He didn't have a foot in the door. He didn't have a famous dad. He didn't have, um, you know, a famous uncle. He didn't have a publishing industry contact. He he didn't go to like a prestigious. He didn't go. He didn't go to a prestigious school. Yeah, Yeah. and he. I mean, he went to a good school and (laughs) no money. And so I think that the workmanlike quality of King's work comes in many ways from the fact that he didn't have. He couldn't be leisurely about writing Mm -hmm. because he worked in, uh, you know, like a laundry pressing place. He worked in uh, like wherever a night shift type of place that I can't remember how he was, but he talks about working at a high school, which is at a high school. Yeah, really hard. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. he did janitorial work and then he was a teacher and he did not really like teaching. He, He saw a future for himself and. All of these jobs were not things he wanted to keep doing. Tabby worked at Dunkin' Donuts when he worked at the laundry press. It's like it was not an easy life for him. And so he wrote at night in their laundry room and he said, this is my ticket. This is my escape. If I can finish this book, if I can get this published, maybe we can start to work our way out of the debt that we're in because they had two kids by the time they were in their mid 20s. So it's like. I can work myself out of this debt, but I need to put in the work because nobody is going to hand me anything. And I think that is another thing that I've always respected so much about King was that I just feel like so many authors, you're like, uh, oh, what's their history? And it's like, oh, their dad was a record executive, you know, or or Keanu Reeves, his mom. I love Keanu Reeves, but like his mom was one of the most influential casting agents in Hollywood. It's like, you know, the majority of writers, their parents either worked for the CIA or they were already famous writers. It's like these are the the things that you see when you look into almost any author. And this is why I love. Wait, what? Of course, you bring up the CIA. I'm just saying it's, it's shocking how many people I'm just saying. I'm just saying (laughs) it's shocking how many people's parents worked in the fucking government. But I will just say, I think that that's why it's important that he includes all of that work in the CV. He talks Mm -hmm. about the rough post-college years. He talks about um, 
you know, uh, the shitty jobs and how gross it was. Some of his descriptions of working in the laundry laundry press are are horrifying. They're so disgusting. Bad. I also, yeah. I just, I, I just want to back up so like real quick and just note that like we sort of skimmed over all the really early memories and uh-huh. they're, they're all of like physical injury or fear of physical injury. <laughs> like they are, they are only like physically traumatic experiences. You have the ear doctor, you got the poison Ivy, you've got Eula, the babysitter who is like the er <laughs> fat girl for him. I'm convinced. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I, I had that her. thought too. That's what I'm saying, man. Rosetta is so like, even just, even if you're just like, Hey, where, like you guys are saying, Hey, where did you get your ideas? Oh, here's Carrie's mom. Yeah. Here's, uh, but I think yeah. this is related, right? Like, or the suicide his mom witnessed. I know. And then like, mm-hmm. There's sort of, he he doesn't have to draw these connections. He doesn't have to say like, and then I got really interested in the Poe pictures, right? Like, and then I got really interested in making up weird stories of my own. Um, but it, and it makes sense. It's, there is no agenda here, but you also can't help but look back on it and say like, yeah, I guess that is a time when our brains aren't developed enough to have the vocabulary for super impressionistic positive emotions. And so what is left is like everything that freaked us out. Mm-hmm. And like, here's everything that freaked him out. And like, well, it also has to do with his upbringing, right? Like these babysitters were there because he couldn't get looked up after he didn't have a dad that stuck around. He like- Yeah, his dad bailed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to read the babysitter section because it deserves to be read. Um, page 20 in my edition. Eula Bula would be on the phone laughing with someone and beckon me over. She would hug me, tickle me, get me laughing, and then still laughing, go upside my head hard enough to knock me down. Then she would tickle me with her bare feet until we were both laughing again. Eula Bula was prone to farts, the kind that are both loud and smelly. Sometimes when she was so afflicted, she would throw me on the couch, drop her wool skirted butt on my face and let loose. Pow, she'd cry in high glee. It was like being buried buried in marsh gas fireworks. I remember the dark, <laughs> the sense that I was suffocating. And I remember laughing because while that was hap- while what was happening was sort of horrible, it was also sort of funny. And I think that sums up a lot of King's work right there. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to build on that, he I mean, he literally gives you a twofer. Uh, on page 19, when he talks about, you know, you mentioned the poison ivy, you know, like that, that, that seems like not only to be the beginning of a lot of the pound cake stuff that we have, but ultimately what we've, I keep bringing this up because this is the one question I want to ask, but I know I could never ask it with him is the scatological obsession. He, which every one of his books, someone's terrified of shitting themselves or like they're going <laughs> to fall, you know, like, or someone it's has true. farted or shitted and it all comes back to. <laughs> to play one place that is really <laughs> instrumental in it, which is, you know, the Barons for him. He was in the Barons. He was having fun with his brother and he had to sh- go to the bathroom. And I mean, he uses poison Ivy to wipe himself. And like the way he describes what happens <laughs> to his hands and like all like his, his testicles and everything else. I'm like, no wonder <laughs> 50 fucking years later, he's still talking about this in the pages. Like it makes more total sense. And now this has been shit watch. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) but I think too, like just it goes on with the babysitter from there where he talks about her locking him in the closet and force feeding him eggs and him throwing up on his mom's shoes. That's like fucked up. And it's funny because he writes about it relatively lighthearted. But I am literally reading this like and I don't say this lightly. Dude, this is abuse. <laughs> like this oh, yeah. is beating the fuck out of you. And you were a child. And it and it and like, you know, when the tickling enters into it and the smacking, I'm like, we're veering on sexual activity here. And it is very, very weird and gross. And so I love that he includes it. And I love that he almost doesn't 
even necessarily judge that because I think he can only he's trying to remember it through the lens of being a child, which is essentially it's sort of horrible, but it's also sort of funny. And I think that balance is uh, is essential to sort of understanding King because people are so put off. And obviously we love to make fun of it. We have a whole section about it. But uh, the scatological stuff, I think, adds a certain playfulness that I think a lot of people really respond to in King because, uh, you know, he can he can write beautiful passages and then he can have people poop and fart and go um <laughs> you know wee wee in their little pants and it's uh there's something i do that (laughs) (laughs) well even when i think about something i know it's not his best book but even uh, you know one of the scenes i always think about in the regulators is the little kid pouring uh honey down his caretaker's throat the blood-laced honey which is a horrifying scene but there is this weird perverted kind of kid-like sense of glee about it too and i i feel like most of his really disturbing scenes have that like when, when you read about um violence in king books it's rarely of the saw variety there's always this playfulness and you know sometimes he goes a little far with it but i think his most effective grueling you know scenes that we would put in the cemetery whether it's you know gage stalking his father or that honey scene they all had that tinge of it yeah and and, and once again yeah he, i know he's not going What's her name? Yula Beulah. Yula Beulah. That sounds like a King character too, like just the name. But I, oh, you know, it sounds I like a Gorilla he, Chance character. It is, a, no, it is a King character. She <laughs> yeah, is a King character. And and I know he's not going. Oh yeah, this. And I do. I yeah, I kind of do like this about it. I know he's not going. Oh, she would be the foundation for so many of the characters I would write later on. But if you <laughs> read two King books, like Mike said, and you're like, oh, holy shit, yeah, this is this is where it all begins. If this was like. I don't know if this was some lame like Star Wars Expanded Universe thing, he would yeah. sit down at the end of this yeah, visit is, and start writing. It is the That's absurdity, really, yeah. though. He's so good at highlighting the absurdity of the grotesque in ways that don't make it more lighthearted, but only call attention to the way that the human mind works, which is in those situations, we can appreciate the absurd and it makes us go a little insane. Mm. <laughs> like... I wish Annie Wilkes farted on Paul Sheldon's head. And, and that's the takeaway, is that we wish Annie Wilkes' head. <laughs> that's the Hershey, takeaway. Hershey's kiss, let's go, come on. But yeah, just, to, to, your, to your point, Dan, about that sort of, um, I guess, gleeful evil in, in that way, um, and just sort of, it kind of ties in what you're talking about, Randall, also just that, that, that sort of hard knock life. And that, you know, we talk so much about the brutality of some of the fates of his characters, right? Like, I mean, I think about, you know, the summation of where all the kids are at the end of the body. And it's like brutal. I mean, you're like, fuck. That was awful. I mean, I like that the movie changes it. Like I do too, because I don't think I could handle that. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure it would sound really weird with Richard Dreyfus being like, oh, he, you know, Vern Burnham alive or whatever. Anyway, um, <laughs> Vern but, burned alive. But you see, like, this was part of his reality. I mean, like, and this kind of goes in tandem with, with what he would put in the, the on writing section. And that these are the examples he puts that we now see and go, oh, I get it why, you know, it's in his stories. But also I get, you know, how he works as a writer because he is a sponge and he stresses that idea that, you know, you have to write that from what you know is true and what what is the truth, especially even if you are writing fiction, you need to come from a sense of truth. And, you know, even just hearing about the fates of the two girls that created Carrie, Mm. And seeing the blunt fates of what happened to them, the fact they both died in ways that seem so almost like too larger than life, too tall tale, and yet they were true. And it makes so much more sense now of why King cars out these awful dead end fates for a lot of his characters now. And and that is just one of 
a dozen fucking examples in this book where you can kind of see, like you're saying, the Rosetta Stone. I like that comp, Caffrey. I think that's mm-hmm. the I best way to look at it. I came up book. with that term. I, I want to talk about <laughs> Carrie because I feel like we have discussed yeah. most of the stuff leading up to it. And I have yeah. to say that yeah. every time I get to the section where he gets the call about paperback going for $400,000, he's going to see $200,000 for it. I got to put the book down. Like mm-hmm. it's so powerful. Yeah. The, the yeah. change, the in his life that that had like it's a total it's like he lived a movie for that one moment and then Mm -hmm. that is already just like this absolutely wild like bonkers moment and you you feel so happy you're like so Mm -hmm. happy for them they live in this like awful house they can't afford the kids medicine like it is story to story how they're paying for things and it's it's also so real because it really happened to him like there is no like people said earlier, like it, it, things are delivered a little neutrally. There's not a lot of like sentiment here other than the the grit of like going through that. Mm-hmm. And then to get that phone call and to like start crying. And then it's, it's, well, it's on the dream. Yeah. I mean, it's the dream and it happens for so few people. Yeah, it is. But then he, <laughs> it goes, Tabby looked over my shoulder at our shitty little forum apartment, just as mm-hmm. I had and began to cry. And that's the end of like section 31. And the next section starts. I got drunk for the first time in 1966 <laughs> I and I, that. oh my, what a transition. Like That's I great, am yeah. bowled over by the like intertwining of everything that occurs in that moment. Like you, it's, it's like the book is like, you can try to reduce a life to a groundbreaking moment, but only for a moment. It is like right. this, this like quick one, two stab of like bittersweetness. Like we're all real. We're all here. We're all histories and consequences, not just phone calls. And even ones that seemingly change everything still have to reckon with the rest of you. And like, mm-hmm. I just, that is like such a powerful transition in the book for me. Yeah, because, you know, if the whole beginning of the book is a, is building up to that moment with Carrie, it's important that he also includes, uh, I think, the two moments in his life, one that he explores in the CV and one that he explores in the afterward, or not the afterward, but the uh, on living section, which are the two things where he had to teach himself how to write again, which was getting sober because he so much um, equated or wove in beer and cocaine and drugs and all this stuff with his creative process that when he lost them, he had to teach himself how to write again without them. And then the accident itself, which he basically couldn't sit down. He couldn't write in the way that he he had for so many years. And I think that's why those two things are included as well in this. And it doesn't just end with him getting that is because, you know, this journey has had many hiccups elsewhere. And uh, we all have those moments where no matter how successful we are, we have to learn how to start again because, you know, I always say like Susan Laurie Parks, uh, the playwright would always say, you know, every time I sit down to write, I'm starting from scratch again. And I don't think that's true with King necessarily, but I think it is. Uh, I think every writer understands that in their own mm-hmm. way is that there is a moment where you have to start again because writing is is not a skill like like, uh, you know, carpentry or something you um it's 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 not it's something that I think you can forget or lose touch with a lot easier than a physical um you know skill. So um yeah, any other sections from this that we want to talk about? Is there anything from the recovery section? I know we talked about a lot of it in our recovery and addiction episode, but if there's anything you want to say about that or any other sections that stand out to you before we move on, Mike, I have I have a few room two thirty sevens. I kind of wanted to throw it out to everyone because about, <laughs> about a real man's life, about a real man's life. But I but these are theories on maybe 
how certain characters or stories came to be. Um, I'm just going to run through real, a, a few quick ones mm -hmm. and maybe you can nod and say, I think you're onto something or you say you're full of shit. Maybe that's the buzzer one. noise. Just good, <laughs> yeah, right? No, a so, fart noise for, yeah. for Yulabula. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So early on page five, uh, he talks about the wasp nest. Uh, the Shining. That's there we go. That's oh, yeah. You know? I'm with yeah. you there. Um, yeah, I'm with you. Okay, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Um, drawing of the three, anyone? Uh, I remember an immense feeling of possibility at the idea as if I had been ushered into a vast building filled with closed doors and had been given leave to open any I liked. There are more doors than one person could ever open in a lifetime, I thought and still think. The I also the thought about drawing of the three. Vague. Okay, cool, vague. cool, cool. Everyone's had vague, the um, I did hallway, think about that. The infinite <laughs> okay, hallway okay. fantasy. I mean, that's in Carrie too. Even the the mind is library. Past that is true. <laughs> and yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this one's in a little obvious. Uh, the Mangler in 1958. Uh, 19, th this, he says, this was probably 1958. I was at Center Grammar School. Dave was at Stratford Junior High. Mom was working at the Stratford Laundry where she's the only white lady on the Mangle crew. Mangler, and then also oh, totally. the importance of the year 1958 in both it and 112263. I, I agree. I, I honestly, I think any of his working class anecdotes about the jobs he did or his mom did are, are so influential to, especially a story like The Mangler, where it's literally about like a work shift and the same thing with Graveyard Shift, which he talks about, obviously. Yeah. So the other ones are a little more literal, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do those because obviously we know that graveyard. I want to make a fart noise, do a crazy one. Um, so here's one that's you crazy. You can just own your power, take your power, make a fart noise. It's okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> so all right, so this is a little crazier. Um, this is where I think. Uh, so on page sixty, it's actually a really cute uh, uh, segment. Um, King talks about meeting Tammy. Uh, one day in late June of that summer, a bunch of us library guys had lunch on the grass behind the university bookstore, sitting between Paul. Silva and Eddie Marsh. Eddie mm, Marsh, mm -hmm, remember those mm -hmm. words? Was a trim girl with a raucous laugh, red tinted hair, and the prettiest legs I had ever seen, well displayed beneath a short yellow skirt. Um, and then obviously they go into talking about how, you know, that was Tabby. And she went into the poem. I think uh, we get Beverly Marsh and Eddie also Casper. Eddie Casbrack there. And I think I never thought of it this way, but is Beverly Marsh based on Tabby? Oh, she might be. I mean, his um, his obsession with legs is definitely based on that. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Going from that. QZZ yeah. top. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure, is, uh, sure is cute how they fall in love. Right? I do. I actually, that was endearing to me, yeah. Although I was, it was kind of funny thinking of the visual of him like at her feet clutching her calf. <laughs> I don't know why Without, like laughed. just starting to do it too. Like, yeah, I was wow. like, damn. I, just, I think too, because I, picture, I pictured like grown-up king doing that, but to like a young cat, I don't know, it's just like <laughs> weird. <laughs> I, I love that. I've actually, I mean, as someone who's who's with the person they started dating in undergrad also, like I, it was super endearing, but I, the, just the imagery of it was very funny, like old silver-haired Stephen King <laughs> like doing that. <laughs> Is that, were those your room 237? That was like, it. That okay. was the last one. Yeah. I, yeah, I yeah. kind of just want to talk about the, the structure, like how these memories are delivered a little bit, especially because it is something that persists throughout the rest of the book. Um, so he, he takes a fragmentary approach here. These are very short. You can't call them chapters. They're just numbered fragments, right? And because of that, they share this sense of, of randomness, of lightness, of snippetness but they also can hold the weight of being ingredients or puzzle pieces, right? And I have a lot of judgmental feelings about writers today who write in fragments. Um, 
I think that a lot of people who do it rely on that brusqueness and that blank space for a sense of false depth, right? Like there's like nothing there. And so it's up to literally the book I'm reading right now is like satirizing and parodying that. Good. What book is it? I want to read it. Uh, Fake Accounts by Lauren Euler. Oh, okay. But you said it was, all right, we we won't talk about (laughs) Lauren Euler. (laughs) I do want to read that. Um, Wait, wait, Mel, just, just to clarify, are you talking about, um, there being a fine line between like the minimalism of, I don't know, the road or something like that. And like that kind of starkness you mean? Like the when road you, when you isn't talk about fragmentary, fragments. is it? Well, well, yeah, sub- yeah, no, yeah. What do you mean by fragmentary? I'm subtweeting just like, um, Jenny yeah. awful right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just anything where it's these very tiny chunks with, with blank space in between. And so when you finish a chunk, you're kind of like, oh, that last lot. Like the oh, blank oh, space okay. is yeah, what no, okay, creates gotcha. the poignancy for you. Yes, the writing yes. isn't actually doing it. So, okay. But King for me is, is literally just trying to get down what he remembers. Like this isn't about trying for poignancy there. And that means that there is so much presence in this book. And, and by that, I mean, present thinking, the process of writing, it is bald on the page. He's figuring shit out as he goes. And we are just getting like swept along in the rip current of it. And that's when, again, his folksy humility for me shines brightest here when it's not manufactured, but is the observable churning of his mind, like Mm -hmm. struggling to speak the truth. And I think at this book's most annoying moments, he's shrinking from that presence. It's when he tries to put a bow on things and end in those like yuck, yuck punchlines. Like, I think that half of those could be cut from the end of his little fragments, but it's because he has this instinct for, for bows and for narratives and one sense is that he can't help it. And so even those weaker lines also become part of the book on writing. Like we're seeing him at work. And like, how gripping is that to witness him looking back at his own uninvented experience, what he knows in this objective sense, and then building commentary out of it. And like knowing that he's doing his own examination of his larger talent, like one that he indisputably has, but can't quite like pin down. It just gives it this real sense of urgency and mystery we're like following him as i don't know i really yeah, like much- it and i don't love fragmenty things and when i started reading it i was like oh fuck am i gonna hate this now <laughs> and but i just felt so uh haunted in the literal sense by like the presence that is doing the process of writing that it was uh it was incredible yeah. i have a question for you on that though like because he talks later on about drafting yeah and you know you go back in you're going to cut things you're going to reorder things you sit around do you wonder how much of the sort of fragmentary nature of his memories how, i wonder how much has changed from one draft to another i yes, if he did have thoughts about this should we wait until we talk about revision yeah, yeah probably okay. yeah. i think where i where i get the most out of this and it begins in the cv and it's something that perseveres throughout is the, is is and we've talked about this a little bit but the the notion of writing as work as as actual work and not something that you wait around for to like flow out of you it's something that you do even when you don't want to do it and i think that ties in some ways to his experience writing um post accident when it was a slog and it was really hard for him to do but the kind of first real instance i see of it where he really hammers that idea home is when he's talking about what he learned from writing carrie and uh, he says the most important is that the writer's original perception of a character or characters may be as erroneous as the readers running a close second was the realization that stopping a piece of work just because it's hard either emotionally or imaginatively is a bad idea sometimes you have to go when you don't feel like it and sometimes you're doing good 
good work when it feels like all you're managing to do is shovel shit from a sitting position. And that to me is the truest line. Um, Randall, I feel like we should mention in the interest of transparency that you are a workaholic. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. I think uh, I well, I will say this, that I am someone who. And I mean, I know you guys all have too. I mean, Mike, you can relate from, I think, the pop culture level, like getting breaking news out and stuff. Dan, you can relate from writing ad copy. We worked at Groupon together. Mm-hmm. Mel, you too. But when you work jobs where you have to crank out a lot of copy very quickly and it has to be clean copy, I think that can help teach you that lesson about writing being work and that you have to mm-hmm. write even when you don't want to. But I think applying that to... um the rest, you know, to creative writing is something that isn't taught enough, I think, mm-hmm. um, that, again, you can't wait for the muse to come. You can maybe for an idea, like you mentioned, Mike, but the actual writing, once you have the idea, it's you can't always write when you feel inspired because it's very rare that you feel inspired, yeah. or at least that's my experience well, uh, uh, after all these years. So Yeah, I, I and I think, too, when I said earlier, I mean, we all said it about this being more of a comment from a memoir that comments on the intersection of life and writing. I mean, writing's part of your life too, but the outside writing aspects of your life. Um, yeah, I really love that workman like approach. Like I go, I don't, I go, it definitely go through periods in my life where I'm not writing creative stuff every day necessarily. Right. But however, when I think about, yeah, Groupon specifically, I mean, yeah, it's Groupon. We were writing like silly ad copy or whatever, but I do think it, it helped me just from like a grind perspective and even from an editing perspective too, of just having to like whittle, 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 mm-hmm. whittle. It sounds like I'm saying li- like little, 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 but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that kind of sharpening. And I, and once again, I, th- I think because so many other writers who have either written craft books or just talk about writing in general, they're so much more interested in talking about the subconscious and what's deep inside you, which is also important uh, too. But like, yeah, I, I think viewing it like you would view any other job is a kind of unique perspective of this book, even though it, feel, it shouldn't be. Like, it feels but like a pretty I, basic observation. We're know. jumping ahead here, but I don't feel like he feels that. Like, he feels that way in one sense where he's like, put your butt in the chair, sure. Yeah, yeah. But what gets my goat about this book, and we'll talk about it when we get there, is his assertion that you have to love it every time. You have to be drawn 100%. to it. You have to be summoned to it. You have to be called in a way that you can't resist. And he is very much like, it's not work for me. <laughs> like, it's- But that's the, con- that's a, you mentioned that there's contradictions yeah. in this book and that is a contradiction the of the book. And I think it comes from the fact that usually for him, the magic is there. That is his unique, uh, like, like ta- supernatural talent. Yeah, he's like, is that he can write <laughs> so much. It just flows out of him. But when he was writing this book, it was not like that. And, he struggled and I, with writing this book. And I think that's why those lessons are weaving themselves in there, because he had to will himself to write this one. And I think he also experienced that at, when he uh, got sober and he was writing those first. But that's unique, he, though. Those are unique experiences. To it's have. true. But I think exactly. That, yeah. But I still think yeah. that those are lessons that he understands need to come out. But, um, but yeah. So but there is a contradiction there, Mel. And I agree. And when I was writing down what is helpful and what isn't for me throughout this book, like sort of his prolificacy isn't something that was hearing about that is not helpful to me <laughs> see, that, see that's where i don't know go for it Capri. when all, all i was gonna say was that um it have to go back and see if this corresponds to what i'm saying i feel like he maybe takes that more workmanlike approach when he's looking back in the past and almost talking about leading up to the the path to carry and then we have to remember like yeah once you have money and you're Stephen King and have film adaptations and respect and all that. Yeah, maybe it is does feel more magical to sit down and write. I mean, may, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong on that. You know, see it, you know. Y- well, yeah, it like had I, to feel magical when he was doing it when he didn't 
have to, but also struggling yeah. to get by. Like, it seemed like that was also when it was at its most kind of like, maybe this is frivolous, but I just feel like I have to do it, you know? Like, yeah, no, yeah, that's true. I mean, and maybe it does just relate to what Randall was saying about it, it, it being written at a time or right after a time, or I guess halfway after a time, because he kind of split the book up into those two phases. Um, where that was coming to him dif- uh, more difficultly. But we'll get there. We're going to talk yeah. about his whole Yeah, life. I know. I'm, I'm just what you the should gun. do every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Uh, let's move on to the next section, what writing is. This is a very short oh little section. And oh, I, I'm i going to jump to Mel because Mel just let loose with a little, oh my God. I just, I'm curious what that, has to, what that relates to. I just... I just love the section. I mean, I don't know. Like I read a lot into it personally. This is a very personal section for me. I want to pluck something real from the fact that it is the only section that doesn't have the title on a blank page before it, but instead has a totally blank page. And then the title is just at the top of the page instead. Um, so it's like, dif- it's like different in the way that it is snuck into the book for me, at least in my edition. But why is it there? Tell me, Mel. Okay, I, I can tell you what it means to me personally. I can't tell you why it's there. Okay, then um, tell me. Okay, let me jump in and just say, because Randall I, doesn't want to know what it means to me. No, I do. <laughs> I just want to say reading this, for me, it just felt like King psyching himself up to write the rest of the book. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it like literally starts with him calling writing telepathy. He's like, writing is telepathy. And I can see him sitting there with the cursor blinking in front of him and he has written mm-hmm. that. And then he is like, yeah. okay, how do I explain this? Because then he gets, the next paragraph he begins with, my name is Stephen King. I'm writing the first draft of this part at my desk, the one under the eave on a snowy morning in December of 1997. So he's like, I gotta, I gotta amp myself up to write the rest of this, you know? And the rest of the, it feels like he's meandering. I'm not saying this is bad necessarily. I'm just saying the rest of this uh, six page chapter feels like he's meandering. He talks about reading. He talks about where you like to read and how you like to read. Uh, And he talks about, um, uh, he has all these like little metaphors about the rabbit in the cage with the number 19 or 18 written on it or eight written on its side. And he's reading all those things. And what he builds to like the big culmination of it is this. He says, you can approach the act of writing with nervousness, excitement, hopefulness, or even despair. The sense that you can never completely put on the page what's in your mind and heart. You can come to the act with your fists clenched and your eyes narrowed, ready to kick ass and take down names. You can come to it because you want a girl to marry you or because you want to change the world come to it any way but lightly let me say it again and this is italicized you must not come lightly to the blank page i'm not asking you to come reverently or unquestioningly i'm not asking you to be politically politically correct or cast aside your sense of humor please god you have one this isn't a popularity contest it's not the moral olympics it's not a church it's writing damn it it's not washing the car or putting on eyeliner if you can't take it seriously we can if you can take it seriously we can do business if you can't or won't it's time for you to close the book and do something else wash the car maybe and there's that you could First, cut that right cut now. the wash the car yeah <laughs> just shut up um so, notice how so it's yeah. the only blank page though before do you guys have that in your section yes blank i page. have that okay yeah yeah um, so i i guess for me i'm like i'm like it's interesting but i i think i still feel a certain amount of vagueness when he says that like what does that mean take it seriously like what does that mm, mean mm-hmm, does that mm-hmm. mean i'm gonna i'm 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 gonna you know sit down every day at a certain time and write which is fine if that's what you mean fine or because he says it's not about being reverent and so this is a section i didn't dislike it, and it's really short so it's it's fine but i felt like it was him psyching himself up so i don't know mike i, I, I want to save your observation mel for the end of this little section uh yeah, so you know it's gonna fucking rock i know it's gonna 
going to blow my mind and I'm ready for it. But Mike, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, I feel like it's his, his version of his own walks. Yeah. He talks Mm. a lot about this, about how, you know, for him to kind of disconnect and recalibrate it's, you know, he, he goes in these sort of detachments, you know, lets his mind settle soak. And that's kind of what I saw is that this is probably like the, the, the closest approximation of what is going on in his head when he's doing those type of moments. I think you're dead on when you're talking about how he wrote that telepathy thing and then was like, okay, how do I explain um, this? <laughs> yeah. Because he doesn't ultimately really get there. <laughs> right. Because I, I was like, well, that's pretty cool. And then I don't really ever feel like I'm like, well, all right, well, I guess that notion will be, um, you know, something that can be more cerebral and can sit <laughs> in my head also. And I, maybe I'll learn about it when I go on my own walk. But, um, I do think that it, it is like a nice little preamble to him getting into the brass tacks of things, which he ultimately does in the corresponding chapters. So, I mean, it, it's a waiting room yeah. chapter, but, but there's a lot being discussed and i'm sure mel will talk about what that is what's being discussed and how you know there's a lot of silver linings to it so dan what do you think i have to be honest i i, I uh, didn't have a ton of intense thoughts about this section i was like oh that's cool <laughs> I'm, sorry. I, I'm just copying i'm just copying to it i, I don't want to pretend like i had something inside paul i was like I, I i agree about the cutting the washing the car line i was like okay stevie we got that's a, okay uncle stevie um uncle yeah stevie. i, I want to hear what I, uh, I love those i i think the button is so important because that's yeah, yeah. this is ultimately why i don't even write anymore because i'm so fucking ocd is that like i feel like you need sometimes to have like cadence is so important for writing and reading for me especially when i was doing you know editorializing and stuff but and so i i, I gotta defend him here i, I think he's i think it's a little uh it's a little rhythm the there. button a, defender you know, it, it, it yes, is it is a style it, it's it is bad a total and you're wrong uh. <laughs> okay mel tell us what okay. this section means to you okay i'm gonna end my little speech here by asking each of you why you write so just know that okay <laughs> i said jurassic park it's all right it's oh. <laughs> so, okay he you starts with saying what is writing telepathy and i'm i'm immediately on board i didn't realize that i write in pursuit of connection until a couple years ago and it was such an obvious simple kind of revelation that i'm still kind of reeling from it um but he's right in in the very literal sense it's reaching out with your mind to try and like worm a tendril into someone else's brain he treats it exceptionally literally here he's talking about sharing an image the rabbit in the cage that's certainly part of it um I like, again, how it taps into the presentness, like he's literally making you envision him writing this and sharing a room in your, sharing a wavelength with him in your mind. You're there with him. He's talking to you. That's just true. Uh, It does make me wonder about the duel between selfish and selfless parts of writing. When I say I write to connect, like to sort of express my obsessions in a form inflected by my voice to see who like wanders by and picks up my writing and recognizes something in it. Do I want to talk to that person? Like maybe, or do I just want to share without expending any effort to get to know them afterwards? Do I just want them to listen to me or do I want them to talk back at me? Do I want to listen? But I think after thinking about this a long time, after reading this section, fundamentally, it is just wanting to know that you're not alone, that somebody wants to pick up what they see you've put down. And it's this, it's a very small, simple spark of connection and acknowledgement and not even passion though that would be great that's the lofty ideal that someone's going to be like oh look at this thing i read it's really ignited something in me it's just proof that what you have to say and think can shake hands with what someone else wants to read and absorb and because we're also like weird and niche and specialized the cocktails of our brains can't be replicated <laughs> all we can do is barf on a page and then shake it in someone's face and go like ah! 
and see <laughs> if they squint at it in something like troubled recognition and like that's enough to see them be like oh wait wait a minute let me look at this barf on a page a little closer and you can do that with any element of writing you can do it with theme you can do it with dialogue you can do it with a shared love of train robberies you just want to be like right with someone you want someone to be like <laughs> right back at you and that's it like you want to connect and that for me is why you can't come lightly to the blank page you can come with a spirit of play or even with a flippant attitude towards what you might ultimately produce. But by the time you're seeking connection, that shit is real and that shit is important. And the stakes are recognition. The stakes are being seen and being acknowledged. And it's insecure, of course it is. We're writers, we're insecure. We all wanna know the answers to these questions. But writers are just soliciting answers through writing instead of dancing or being a doctor or building skyscrapers or whatever. The stakes are, am I a shadow? Am I a facsimile? Am I a puppet or am I a person? Am I a ghost or am I alive? And like, that's what he's saying to me, or that's how I filter what he's saying through my own experience of writing. But why do you guys write, if not for that? Dinosaurs, Jurassic Park. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I, like I said, I do maintain that, I, I know I'm joking about it, I do maintain that the act of getting into writing, like sitting down to write your first short story or movie or whatever it is, at least for me, really does just come from seeing a story and want to replicate it and wanting to give that, being thrilled by something and wanting to give that same thrill to other people. I really do think the beginnings of it for me anyway are as simple as that. As I've gotten older and, you know, I just got out of grad school, not just, but got out of grad school a couple years ago too. And so, you know, a lot of that is spent like sort of analyzing, at least in, in the program I was in, analyzing a lot why you write. And I think it's funny because I don't write directly about my family a lot but in my family like in most people's families there are a lot of I don't want to call them secrets but just maybe a re uh, somewhat of a refusal or uh, to deal with your emotions and there's a lot of repressed feelings um and I say that with love I'm, I'm close to everyone in my family but like I, on in the older generation I think I just see I've seen a lot of that over the past few years through some specific events that have happened and for me writing these days it feels like this urge to just like pick at that and like i said i don't mean that i'm writing like these documentary plays where i'm where i'm examining my family that that couldn't be further from the truth but i do think it's just this desire to pick and needle and needle and needle and needle and needle and delve into something that you find confusing and you're not sure why it's happening until that that truth comes out um and by truth i don't mean um some big revelation in each story, but just something that feels either emotionally true, true or surrealistically true. Yeah. It's just that, I don't know. It's just, I, for me, I guess writing is just being annoying and wanting to talk about things a lot because I see a lot of people around me, not talking about the things that in my mind they should be talking about to lead to, I guess, better emotional health. Um, but, but yeah, so, but, but I, I read about monsters and shit, so I don't know. <laughs> like maybe that's, that's, maybe that's, uh, pinning to monsters and shit too. <laughs> No, no, but I, I mean, I, at the, I, I think it's a mixture of those things, though, because I don't, I, at the, at the, I mean, I, re I really do like dinosaurs. Like, I think that <laughs> I just think they're cool, and I think I somebody think, do you want to share that? <laughs> somebody please excise <laughs> the audio of Dan just saying, "I just like dinosaurs." I just, I, 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 God, this guy's a total idiot. Why is he on this writing <laughs> podcast? But no, but I, and and I do think too, when I think about the supernatural which there, there's some kind of supernatural element in everything i write some some kind of monstrous figure at least in everything i write i do think we feel genuinely or, or i feel genuinely shaken by those kinds of things like if i if i, I don't know if i see a, a shark in the ocean it, yeah I, okay i think it's cool but it also makes me feel very small in a way that's also satisfying to me it's like well like when i think about right now oh 
hundreds of feet below the ocean there's all sorts of freaky shit going on that i know nothing about and there's um anglers with lights on their heads and squid that are the size of skyscrapers maybe and maybe there's a megalodon whatever else just that kind of other world that feels really profound to me and makes me feel minuscule as a human and i guess you could tie that to emotional truths too right it's just this like this digging and digging and digging and uncovering and uncovering and uncovering to the point where it maybe feels a little pesky like um we were hanging out with a friend a couple years ago and uh she started kind of delving into her uh her own family issues and i i wasn't i wasn't trying to do this but i just kind of kept asking because she was sharing and i so i kept asking her about it and then she started crying and and susan's like what the fuck's wrong with you like why are you asking about that i believe she was talking about it and she's like yeah you're the only one who couldn't read that like she clearly didn't want to talk about that and and she and and her friend wasn't mad but i felt i felt like a giant asshole about it but that when i think about writing that's what it feels like to me it's just this like kind of kind of thing sure. well, at least fictional writing. anyway that's my long answer I don't know if it made any sense or not, but that, that is why not I just write. journal about it. Why release it to the world? Man, that's so fine. I hate journaling. I think journaling <laughs> sucks. Like, yeah. Well, cause that, but, but, but like you said, I think there's that sense of exhibitionism, like the, like, I, I think it was Bruce Norris. Who's a playwright talks about how he thinks at least with theater, especially theater, cause it's in front of live flesh and blood people in a room, you know, playwrights can say they want to do all this profound stuff, but at the end of the day, they're all exhibitionists. They all want to go and drop their pants on stage and say, look at me. And I think that's an element of it. And I think that's the selfish reasons y'all were talking about. Like, yeah, I could journal about that or I could share it with the world and, and have people tell me it's good and entertaining and feel good about myself <laughs> through, through doing that. I mean, I, I think that is the truth. I mean, we're, I think there is that little bit of, uh, of narcissism in, in every writer, myself included. Yeah. And dinosaurs. <laughs> Mike, why do you write? I mean, I, I don't really have a long answer. I, I just like to see, you know, I like to put my ideas somewhere. <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, like I, I don't write anymore. I, I, I just spent the last 15 years um, teaching myself why I shouldn't be writing just because it's, I, I hate the industry that, that used to foster me. But um, I, 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 I still write in different ways. You know, obviously we still write for this podcast. And I mean, every, I write every strip for, you know, the shows that I host and, um, in that respect, I'm still using, I guess, the written word. But ultimately, like it really boils down to just I have a lot of ideas in my head, and I, I got to put them somewhere. So and your day to day now is not it might not be structured around writing fiction, but it is structured around connecting people through horror and like trying to forge shared obsessions through a genre that like we all enjoy. Yeah, I mean, my my old thing is I I only went into writing because it was the easiest medium for me to lean on. Um, to, to get ideas across. I mean, I, that, that's my thing. It's like, I, when I talked about ideas before in the waiting of the muse, it's, it's the idea that like, those are singular original ideas that create original stories for Stephen King. Like that, that, like that Stephen King's puts to us. Right. Like that to me is, is ultimately his smoking gun is the fact that he's able to keep churning out those original ideas and he's able to create stories out of them. Like with, I think there are different ways to, a use ideas and then also b to write them you know for me i never really like to sit down and and write the original stories i would have an idea but you know maybe i'd like to use it in certain ways mm -hmm. or you know maybe i like kind of you know wield it in in a, in a different medium uh, you know so to speak i mean that's kind of the reason why i think i went into like research and journalism is that i i loved kind of engaging with artifacts and worlds that are out there and and kind of just i don't know prodding them a little bit and for me it's like 
you know, ideally I'd like to get behind a mic now or in front of a camera and talk about it. But at the, you know, early on, you know, when I'm some, you know, pudgy nobody in college, the easiest way to do it was, you know, opening up a fucking computer and, and writing. And, and I mean, for me, the, the thing I, I relate so much about this book is, 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 uh, is the idea that, you know, we talked about how King is like a workaholic and, you know, how he uses it as like a workmanlike experience. And like the thing that, and I mentioned this earlier is like the thing that gets me the most from this book, uh, is his idea that he doesn't know, like, it's harder for him not to write, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't technically, you know, relate to that writing wise, but I relate to that work wise. And like for me, work has to stem from some sort of, and this sounds so fucking pretentious, but work for me has to stem from some sort of um, creation. Like I I always like creating things. I like putting things into motion. I like working and collaborating with people to make those ideas that I have come to life. Like maybe I can't do the idea, but I can bring the idea to other people. That's why I've always loved producers. It's why I've always loved, you know, folks that can kind of correlate things and put and you know make the stars align and stuff like that and i and i think that's a different way that you can look at creation and look at the way that you can take ideas um and you know to go back to writing writing does involve a lot of that i mean you you have to put those things together you have to kind of organize it and um ultimately what i've come to peace with especially you know leaving the hell that I was in for the last 15 fucking years but um was the fact that you know i know how to write I can lean on it if I want to, but I, I, I've never really had that sort of, I think after college, I just got burned in trying to write original ideas and original stories. And I think for me, it's mostly a way to just, the best way I could describe it. Uh, I, I tried to make this short and simple and I got prodded like, into yeah, this wow, fucking here we go, tangent <laughs> um, <laughs> where I sound like an asshole, but yeah. where I always do. But um, it's just, I, it's just, I need a place to put my ideas. That's it. That's the only reason why I do it. So, you know. That's the short end of it. I love that both of you were like, it's me like poking and prodding at something. Yeah, it's very phallic. Uh, <laughs> no, no, yeah. I just like to fuck uh, every. Oh, like, use it like it's, a, like it's a language just, of know. like you're inconveniencing someone or somebody. Like, I don't know. But I, I like, but I like that feeling on the page and then hopefully you've gotten it to a polish enough point to where it gets from mm-hmm. an audience where it doesn't feel, you feel like that, you know, but I, I love feeling like you're just, and I will, all right. And the, this last thing I'll say about it, I all, and I, I'm sure all of you have had this too, and this doesn't happen for me all the time when I write. But every now and then, when you when you do sit down, and I I, I know it's going to sound like oh, it's like I'm just a vessel for something, uh, which is such a pretentious thing I to say. But shit. like, no, I do I do too. But like, have you as writers have have you ever worked on something where you do just get into this kind of run on it? I mean, it doesn't happen often for me, but like just that oh shit, I'm cranking out 10, 20 pages that I feel really good about, and I know oh, yeah, it's flow from. state's real. Yeah, flow state. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, I like to I like to think of it as as God speaking through me. But flow state <laughs> is uh, is also good. No, but um, that that is such a rush. I mean, just from purely once again selfish reasons for writing, it just feels good to me. Um, mm-hmm. Probably because you're in the moment and not thinking about it too much. What, what, what Randall did we didn't uh, did you say why you wrote? No. I missed that feeling. I missed that rush. I I haven't had that in so long. Mm. I have no idea why I write. I I've been doing it since I was young because I read all the time when I was young. So it was sort of just a natural, I started writing and then, um, and I was always really prolific at it and I was always good at it. And I think that's why I kept doing it was because I wasn't good at a ton of things, but I was good at that. And, um, and I've worked. I mean, I think just what I can say simply is that 
I've always had to work and I've always used my writing in my work. Um, I've, I've worked as a professional writer in some capacity most of my life. And I think that in some ways you talked about like the cocktail of experience that's like in our head as writers. And I feel like I have too much. Like I, I was a grant writer. I was an educational book writer. I was a tech writer. I was been a journalist. I've been a pop culture critic. I've, uh, you know, I've been an ad copy writer. I've done all kinds of various things and, Doing so much of it for work absolutely burned me the fuck out. And then also comparing that with um, creative writing on the side and going and, you know, being very, very deep in that for many years, doing theater and traveling around the country and doing plays and having some success and then having a lot of failure and having people say really mean things about you in newspapers and having theaters like fuck you out of contracts and things like that. All this like and having agents who don't give a shit about you or ones who are just a wrong match for you. I've had all these experiences and and I think a lot of them have just I, I have no idea why I continue to do it because a lot of it's made me really miserable. Um, I've had moments of transcendence and I guess those are the things that I cling to. And the reason I'm still writing to this day, I'm working on a novel and I'm working on a musical is um, I guess because I'm trying to, I know that I'm good at it and I'm trying to find the flow state again. You know what I mean? Like I want to try to remember why I ever gave a shit about this because it's always worked to me now. Even when I'm focusing primarily on those things, it's always worked to me now. And I think that is, uh, I'm almost trying to will myself out of that because I know, I just know what it's like, like, you know, obviously Mike, you can relate is, uh, just when you work in sort of, um, an industry that demands grind, um, and, Mike and I are both workaholics in the sense that we will grind for you and we will uh, write and write and write and write and write <laughs> and make no fucking money. It's it's I think that's it's an exhausting state to exist in. And and, you know, when you're doing pop culture writing like Mike and I were, you don't have people who tell you that. I mean, maybe you do occasionally. You sometimes have people say, hey, that was really great what you wrote. But the majority is I just get someone telling me to kill myself because I made fun of Nicki Minaj. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, uh, <laughs> like, why am I even doing this? You know, and it's like um, this is uh, so I don't know. I think I'm in a state where I, I know I'm good at writing and I feel like I have some things to say that I feel like other people aren't saying. And that's what I'm trying to do. So I guess that's my answer. Uh, thanks for allowing us all to spill our uh, our guts all over this podcast. Vomit on the page and shake it. We knew we knew we were gonna get there. I'm just so interested that you like. We'll talk about this more when we get to ideal reader stuff. But it's like none of you like to talk about the sharing, the readers, the people that you're writing for. No, I said I said the audience. I just spent I, I just spent 15 years. I mean, Randall was talking about the you know getting angry about Nicki Minaj. I had like about the writing that you choose to do. The writing that you choose to do. No, but I mean, Mike, you had like a guy who writing I chose to do. That's crazy about it. You had a guy who wanted to like kill you because you. You said something bad about this. I give a C plus to Coldplay's Live in La Vida or whatever it was. Live in La Vida Loca or whatever the fuck you call it. so much, you're going to kill a guy over Coldplay. But that's the thing. It was just, I don't know. I think another thing that also didn't, that I didn't admit or discuss is, is I'm, I'm obsessive compulsive and, and it became, it's got, it got to a point where, um, and King Todd, there's a section in the next one that we're going to get to where he's like, oh, it doesn't matter. You could have run on graphs and you could have run in sentences. I'm like, oh, I know you can, Stephen, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. Uh, it didn't change the fact that every article I wrote, I would literally, pr- and I still do it when we write our, our, um, we write our, our, uh, our pieces for the, the podcast around Bloody Disgusting. It, 
you can look at it. You go and preview the article or look at the article and most of the graphs have all the same lines and they don't use the same words. And it's just the, the, the mathematical part of my, the side of my head, um, which always kicked ass in the standardized testing, not so much in the English, how about the irony of there, it took over. And so it became, writing not only became a burnout just because I hated the industry and the people I worked with, but um, I also hated the, the, the exercise of, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to find out a way to make sure I can write a, a thousand word piece and have all the graphs be six lines and not use any of the same words. And I'm going to sit there. I mean, like, honestly, like what ultimately broke me was in 2020 in December when I wrote the review for The Stand, that this, this fucking thing that I should know, like the back of my hand, because not only are we talking about it week to week, but I've spent four fucking years dedicated to the goddamn man who wrote it. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there reading the writing the review and seven hours go by and I'm still looking at this three graph thing and be like, no one's going to care. Only you are going to care. And I'd be like, you know what? That's right. No one does care. And I'd walk away and I'd go right back into it after taking a shower and I'd go right back yeah. in and be like, I can do the six, six sentences. I can do it. So if all of this, the only reason why I d decided to even go on this episode is to be a cautionary tale <laughs> to show you, <laughs> Mike, you what know it's I'm going to happen. When you like get I'm that. talking about, but that's what I mean. It's, it's just I don't know. But anyway, that's where I'm at. With, <laughs> I can with definitely respect that you are <laughs> burnt out on that writing, like and on writing in general. I guess what I, writing is for me is the thing that I'm creatively passionate about, and for you, it would be your your production work. Yeah, that would be it. I would say ultimately. Mel bringing the better side of me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think love it. I, just, I think I'm trying to rediscover passion in in writing again because my passion is kind of all whipped up in in my life and my marriage and my cat and, uh, and and you know the life that I live and my friends and things like that. And I get and those are the things that I think I devote a lot of myself to because I think when I put too much or when, you know, times that I have been very passionate about writing, I think, uh, you know, the come the come down when things when, you know, when things uh, don't quite go as planned uh, is is really crushing. And I think in a way it's about um, having things that aren't that. And but I also at the same time, I miss that. Like when you talk about this flow state, I'm like so jealous of that because I remember that I used to have that. Mm -hmm. And now yeah. it's like, it's it's like a unique form of torture uh, when I write and um, and I'm trying to fight that because because writing just became work for me for so long. And uh, and I'm trying to remember what passionate well, writing is again. Yeah, I was going to say, and I, I think because all of us have made. Yeah, all of us have made livings as writers or editors or students or teachers or whatever for like a long time now. I th I th I think if uh, if I can diagnose Mike and Randall for a second, but I, I think Please for do. both of you. No, for real. I think it's because you both just came out of. Yes, we've all had full time jobs you writing. Should both you guys... be institutional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but no, but you, you guys, I'm kidding. You just, I'm kidding. We, we've all we've all made our livings as writers for a while, but you guys just came out of long stretches of making your living as a writer in a very specific industry that is in a very precarious, not great <laughs> state right now. No, for very real. Like, true. I, I think for you guys, it's it, like what you're saying. What I'm hearing, I'm like, no, I think I think that's because of like the world i mean you're still in it because we're on we have a podcast but you know what i'm saying like being an editor or a writer in like this at, at like a specific site in a specific industry well, amongst the internet of, and, it's being yeah. part of dying industries too because yeah yeah, all yeah, of yeah. These, i didn't want to say yeah, well no yeah, they are though yeah. i mean that's no it's with true most... yeah go ask the writers from clearly i should not have asked I mean... why do you write i should have no no no, no, no we're asked, digging, we're digging, we're but playing, i should have just asked why do you do what creatively fulfills you but i think what's great though mel is we have your 
perspective, which is beautiful and passionate. But then I think there is that other side of the coin. Um, and I'm jealous. I want what you have. And uh, that's what I'm like. I feel like I'm actively trying to to get to a place. I like don't, that I don't have it. I can't tell you the last time I experienced a flow state. I'm, well, I'm just saying, it. but I'm saying your answer was very articulate. Oh, we're all miserable. <laughs> but your, your answer <laughs> to the question was very articulate and very beautiful. And so, and I love that. And I wish I had something like that. I had a but I think, flow state last week. I'm not going to lie. It was, that's uh, great. Uh, <laughs> that's great, Dan. I know it sounds no, weird. Yeah. No, <laughs> but no, I think it's care. like, uh, it's, it's so many of the industries that used to flourish. Like, I mean, do you think there is somebody like, do you think they're handing out $400,000 paperback deals these days? You know what I mean? They like, are, but to like, you know, exactly. Two people and, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like back in the day, King could get, um, you know, $500 publishing in Jugs magazine. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> like, it, ain't, it just ain't like that anymore. And uh, I'm not saying. No, now you have to pay $500 to get into Jugs magazine. You need $500 <laughs> to enter the contest. I mean, it was in 2000, yeah. <laughs> it was in 2000, 1999 that King was, was trying to challenge big publishing because he already saw the writing on the wall how hard it is for people to break into it because everything is shrinking as uh as everything monopolizes in this country and um and we're just watching industry after industry the majority of which are creative ones uh just collapse under venture capital and various other things and all of that impacts a lot of this as well and especially when you've hitched your wagon to certain industries as i have done in the past and it's uh it's hard to watch sort of the infrastructure fall around your ears as you're pumping out uh while you're trying to stay positive about the stuff that you're pumping out every day. So I think it's like a complex question. Um, and especially like, you know, if I was 23 years old, I would have had the most, uh, you know, poetic and, um, and, and clear eyed, uh, uh, um, answer for why I'm a writer. And it probably would have been really pretentious and, uh, and awful. And now I've, I've, you know, experienced Are you calling me naive and pretentious. <laughs> not at all. I'm saying, I'm saying my answer would have been, uh, very cloying. I think, but mm -hmm. it would have had a certain, uh, you know, uh, wide eyed beauty and passion behind it. But um, but now I think it's I see I'm, I'm trying to figure out why I write, because I think uh, I, I am like I, I have a when King says in this book, he's like, why am I writing a book about writing? I find myself every time I sit at the computer being like, why am I writing anything? Like, wh I know, what but do that's I why it's like so interesting, because that question is so there. And like, yeah, and yeah. I don't know it. Anymore. And it can change. Like, you can write for different reasons. Yeah. For me right now, well, it's he, connection. I'm, I'm just I'm so curious. I thought you guys were going to be like. Oh, I guess a little bit of it is connection. <laughs> I thought my, I thought I had a connect. I thought I had a, a nice sunny answer. You did. Yeah. <laughs> it was lovely, Dan. Sorry to well, be doomsayers. I, I, well, Dan, yeah. no, well, your I'm answer was was boxes. repression. <laughs> it's because people. But, but I write about... to get past repression, though. I th right. I, I think so. That I think that's. We can a, bookmark a... this bit of the episode as like thirty minute digression into. Oh, but but I do yeah, think, right? I do think it has to do with what. Um, I'll we'll save it for later to go into the supplementary materials. But there in the current edition, there is this interview with Joe Hill afterwards, where Joe Hill asks him that too, and. King talks about how he recognizes that it could go away at any time and that he's really lucky that it hasn't for him and that he just, he just feels grateful to still really enjoy doing this and still be putting out stories that he cares about. And in the case of working with his sons and also Richard Chismar getting to do it with people he cares about too. And I think, and, and yeah, once again, easy for him to say, I raised had this amazing career, but like, even if you've had an amazing career, it's not guaranteed that you're going to stay happy or, or stay creatively fulfilled or, or put out a book like 112263 or some of the late. I mean, there's so many writers who have dried up that are equally as wealthy and at this point privileges him, but just don't have the magic, you know? And I think, Randall, you had mentioned before about 
wanting to needing to have passion in other aspects of your life. And I think that's so important. And King talks about that too later on. I, I can't I should have pulled up the quote about like not building your life around writing, but maybe the other way around. And I, I yeah. because, it, you, because yeah. if, if life shouldn't the, be a support system for art, it's the other way around. Is. I agree. And, yeah. and I think, I think yeah. that's so that honestly, that to me, as I get older, especially is the thing that I really take to heart because, you know, coming out of grad school and in, in, into a pandemic, literally in an industry that was already hard to have success in that became even harder. You know, I poured so much energy into like, oh, did I get this grant? Did I get this submission that I, I sent in or whatever? And like, if you get to be a semifinalist for something, pouring all your happiness into that. And, but then what happens is you don't get the thing you're, yeah, you're, you're second place or whatever, but you don't get the thing. And it's so easy. That's all you're caring about in your life. And you're not focusing on your family or your interests or your friends. It's so easy to become a fucking miserable person. Um, I was yeah, going to say, like, I don't want to try and pretend like we can get actual closure around this. But one difference no, is that I've never tried to make the writing, the way I earn my living. Like it's, it's always yeah. been like, it's the, so hard the thing get, that it, I do apart from work, which involves writing. It's a different type of writing. Exactly. Yeah. No, th- like trying like, and yeah, I, I hope we all, if, if, if we want that, I hope we all get to that point. Cause that's wonderful. But like you said, it happens to a very select few people. And if you, it, it's weird, cause you have to care about it. You have to care about it enough to, to, you know, put your butt in the seat and crank it out or whatever, but you almost can't care about it so much that everything in your and uh, else in your life takes a back oh, seat yeah, because then when you don't uh, well, when you don't get that and that's happened in the past year, couple of years like and then when you don't get that thing and you just find yourself like stewing and miserable and thinking about oh it's like the it's the worst man yeah Mike uh, what were you saying here here's a comp that I, that uh, that's a little more positive right that <laughs> love it I, I've actually I've I've thought about a lot and I've thought a lot of it in the in the context of King's work I mean if you look at his, his you know his 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 uh, timeline as we have and we've looked ahead because we've covered a lot of his new books too. He has eras, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he starts out with, and he mentions it here. He he writes what he loves, right? He loved the EC comics, which is why I think a lot of his earlier works are informed by that. And then ultimately, you know, he tried to reject that. And, you know, he was coming into a new, you know, era of his, you know, his life. He was getting into the, you know, the recovery aspects of it. And he was writing a little bit more, you know, distant, uh, more, more real life horrors, psychological horrors, which we just finished with, with the, you know, the nineties. And now he's getting into kind of more cerebral dramas, which is kind of really informed by where he was in life. And I think about that and I, and I try to wonder, you know, how does that relate to, you know, what I've done in terms of writing and I, I ultimately, I, it's not fair to me to say, oh, I hate writing because if I did hate writing. I wouldn't really be doing what I'm doing still. And what if I'm being real about it and not trying to be cynical as I love to do all the time because I'm just a cynic at heart. It what I what, what ultimately has happened with me in writing is that, you know, I, I have to do it somehow you know and it has been my way of living because I don't want to work for anyone. I like to work for my own. I'm a, I'm a loner. If, if, if so to speak. So I like to kind of be able to carve my own craft that way. But what has happened in that career that I've been incredibly, you know, lucky and privileged to have, which to be fair, you know, I don't want Randall and I to sound like we're, you know, curmudgeons and everything. We do feel privileged to be able to have done what we did. We do feel that we were burned by an industry that we had faith in that, that ultimately was succumbed by forces that, you know, were out of our control, which honestly is, happening to everything in america so if it didn't happen to you yet rest assured <laughs> just wait but anyway you said this what i've seen <laughs> it is positive so what I've, what I've seen with myself and this maybe this is what you can you know do for you is you know if you find yourself doing something good and ultimately not liking what you are 
currently doing in that state with what you do well, find something else within that lane that is using those tools that you can find that sort of love again mm-hmm. and that you don't feel like it's work anymore. And that's what I, I did. agree because I started out, I started yeah, out I writing about music and then I opened the door to start writing about film. And then when I got tired of that, what happened? I started writing about and loving about horror, which led to where we are today, which is arguably the most important thing I feel like I've ever been a part of in my entire life. And, and, and that comes from the sense that I, I sat down, I said, I'm going to write, I'm going to, I said, I'm going to learn how to write. And I use those tools to be able to open those doors. And, and I think as long as you keep those, that toolbox in your head and, and, and used and keep looking for the other doors, especially when you've explored each room, I think you're good. And maybe you're not writing fiction like like Stephen King, but you're writing something there. And you know there are multiple ways to to, to go about writing. You know, and 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 as long as you're, you know, doing the best you can voice wise and all the tools that you have that you've you've been able to sharpen and you can bring them on to that next door, you're going to be good. Hey everyone, that is the end of the first part of this two-part episode on on writing. We're going to be back to talk about the toolbox, the on writing section specifically, and then also on living where King talks about the accident and uh, that should put a cap on our discussion of the accident. As Mike said earlier, if you want to hear us talk more extensively about the uh, accident that nearly ended King's life, we have a great episode on it in The Barons, www.patreon.com slash The Barons. That's where you can find all kinds of bonus content uh, uh, and hours, hours and hours and hours, maybe perhaps more than one hundreds of hours uh, of of material. So hundreds Jurassic of hours. Park coverage. Yeah, we have a yeah. Jurassic Park episode. It's pretty uh, great. Look, Park is in King's Dominion yes. now, a, a <laughs> Jurassic World Dominion. So it's a part of the lore. I, I always imagine like what the listeners and they they're like, wow, look at all this content, and they're like, Jurassic Park. What the <laughs> fuck is this doing in here? <laughs> Hey, man, it's a great discussion. Three hours. Uh, it's a long, yeah. <laughs> this has been a great discussion. Uh, we all bled a little bit on the page, which is probably appropriate, I think, for for this episode. Next time, we're going to be a little bit more in the weeds of King's book, so stay tuned for that. It's going to be a good time. And uh, let's sign off with a long days and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.